Hey, I'm here with John, and tonight we're going to discuss Gregory Palamas and uh, Palamas's view of silent prayer and the role. This is this sounds like a, a minor thing, but actually is, uh, as I understand it, a major uh, controversy that uh, we we might say is a dividing point between Eastern Orthodoxy or between the Orthodox Church uh, and uh, the Western understanding. Is that too strong, John? Yeah, I don't know that the this point itself didn't cause any division because that had already been accomplished, but the theology that flows out of a controversy which during its time between Barlam of Seminara and Gregory Palamas was one that was very much characterized in the East as a difference between Latin theology and traditional patristic Eastern Orthodox theology because Barlam uh, had become a scholastic theologian. And so the, the key difference, let, let's state the key difference between the Latin and the Orthodox tradition, and then let's tie in then what Palamas is saying. And at, at one level, this may sound a little bit odd, uh, especially in, in this country, but uh, the, there may be a, an idea in this that... Uh, a, a, an embodied nature that you get in the Eastern tradition that in some way is left out and it comes to focus then on prayer and the, the, the way of uh, the function of prayer. But let's, let's state this theologically. What is the divide? So uh, between Palamas and Barlam, while I wouldn't want Barlam to be characteristic of Western theology in general, certainly what the East thinks, Eastern Christianity would say that is Western theology. It's probably also true that practically speaking, this is what's been true of many Protestant versions of Western theology and Roman Catholic versions. And Barlam essentially was stating that the universe creation is devoid of God's grace being inherent in it, and so that the only way one receives revelation or insight or even grace, is always from some external means by God. So that's very similar to nominalism and Western traditions that take up the university of being. While Palamas, relying on patristic sources and being firmly rooted in the Eastern Orthodox monastic tradition, was saying that the cosmos, that all of creation is directly infused with God's grace, and that knowledge of God, and even if we're starting to use the language of being able to see God, isn't something that is uh, relegated, rele- relegated to the mind, or something that is just through reason, as Barlam would have stated, but rather is a complete experience of God and an embodied experience. Okay, let's pause here a minute and make sure that we're working with... So when we, we're talking about nominalism, let's run down a, a bit what nominalism is and the problem with that. Nominalism basically, in its most basic form, refers to a philosophy of language. How do we speak about things? And so you get that in the, the word nominalism about where is the reality of something located, is there any inherent reality in uh, nature, or in creation, or in physical things, or is it in name only? Is it names that we apply to things um, 
becomes very rationalistic in that sense. Nominalism, as it's taken up in the Western tradition, usually is first applied to the doctrine of justification and lends itself towards notions of justification, which we most usually associate with Reformed theology, as being forensic and theoretical justification rather than any actual or real justification in the life of a Christian. An embodied sort of thing. And so it's not that nominalism is simply equated with Protestantism, but we could say that Protestantism is more or less equated with nominalism. Yeah, nominalism, of course, dates back to like 13th century. Right, uh, right. 14th so that, century. Anyway. So that it, it, it is a, a, an idea that develops in uh, Catholicism. And this is specifically then... Uh, did, I, did I overstate it to say that in Protestantism that it is almost inherently nominalistic? I think, in, at least in any case of uh, Protestantism, that descends from uh, Reformed theology, Calvin's Wingley, Lutheranism, uh, it hasn't been reflective enough to work its way out of nominalism, which really doesn't leave much. So, I mean, I mean it's not that it's inherently or of necessity uh, nominalist, yeah. but that it has just historically yeah. uh, that nominalism is what distinguishes uh, Protestantism and this is, I think, the great predicament that uh, between Protestantism and Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. But what you're describing here, then, is that in the Eastern uh, tradition with Palamas, there is a clear departure from mm-hmm. nominalism. Yeah, and what's key to understand about this controversy is it's rare in the sense that most key controversies in the Eastern Orthodox Church are that they acknowledge end with the seven ecumenical councils. But here we're in the 14th century, talking about a controversy that very much shapes the Eastern Orthodox Church even until today. You don't read very many Eastern Orthodox, or I've never read an Eastern Orthodox theologian that doesn't at some point, somewhere, mention Gregory of Palamas, and usually don't have to look very hard. It's very influential. So that Gregory of Palamas is prototypical of Eastern. I think that he does the best job of describing the uh, I think he does the best job of describing the implications that have always been there in Eastern Orthodox doctrines and the centrality of deification and the incarnation of Christ. So let's let's back up a little bit and restate that the, the problem with nominalism is that it tends then to focus upon revelation as uh, something that comes in and through uh ideas or words or language and then is not uh, a fully embodied understanding. It's over and against realism. It's dualistic by nature in the sense that realism usually would posit some kind of meaning or uh, meaning would be a good word posit some kind of meaning in the thing itself whereas nominalism is saying there is no meaning in the thing itself. And so revelation comes how in a nominalistic and uh, in, in a Latin? So in, uh, within nominalism, you know, Luther's a good example of this, you have the hiddenness of God, which everybody at some point is going to express the fact that God in his essence is unknowable. But Luther is just going to say God is hidden, period, except for the God we see in Jesus Christ suffering. The problem is 
that God for Luther doesn't necessarily reveal the hidden God to us. There's always that distinction. And the distinction is one in which everything that we don't understand about God or can't fit into that picture of Jesus Christ suffering is still left in the Deus Absconditus or this, the hidden God uh, for Luther. And so you, you have that tension and that trouble. Whereas somebody like Palamas is also going to agree that, well, no, we don't know God in his essence. But that's because knowing God isn't something we simply do in the mind. It's an experience of God. And we can never become the essence of God. That would cease to be created human beings. And so the conversation is usually framed differently uh, outside of nominalism, outside of that tendency, that dualistic tendency. So that uh, uh, with Palamas, there is a clear departure then from what is a fully developed nominalism. And, yeah. it, and it focuses on prayer. Yeah, and to be fair, I don't... I've not encountered nominalism in the vocabulary of this controversy because I don't know how well Barlam was able to express the theology that he had received by reading scholastic theologians in an Eastern setting. And I'm not for sure how well equipped the East was at that point to engaging a scholastic theology. So um, it does come up in the controversy that major problem with Barlam is that he is scholastic, but in the way that it's framed up in Eastern minds, it, it seems just to be accidental. All let's, of hindsight will. Or you, let's, let's, uh, to make sure we're not losing anybody here, let's say what scholasticism is and why that could be a problem. Because scholasticism, again, could just be a methodology of asking questions and finding answers to those questions, which isn't inherently wrong. But it also included a tendency to fuse Greek philosophy with uh, Christian theology. And to the Greek Orthodox, that would have been anathema. So that uh, what you get, that scholasticism did tend to lend itself, not of necessity, but did tend to lend itself to nominalism. Yeah, yeah and I, I guess I just wanted to be careful to it always be admitting that Byzantine theology during this period often only provides us with characterizations of Western theology. It's not as if they've completely understood it, though usually their gut instincts are correct. Right, right. I mean, and, and in all of this, we have to recognize that Luther is rejecting scholasticism, but does not succeed in getting yeah. rid of nominalism. That's right, that's right. Uh, that, uh, in fact, he didn't get to the heart of the problem. That's right. Okay, so let's let's go to the the particular controversy with Palamas and uh, who is his interlocutor? Barlam of Seminara. Okay, and so Palamas is advocating a form of prayer. Then explain this form of prayer and its significance. It is known as hesychasm and had been around for some time in the Greek tradition. And Palamas was a monk who was teaching other monks how to pray the silent prayer which focused on the heart, and the heart being transformed by God. Now again, the language of heart here isn't in any way um, over and against the body. So the prayer is focusing on being deified, the action of theosis and the orthodox tradition. And all of that's going to get better explained by Palamas because of, the, because of this controversy, rather. 
So that's where he begins. And hesychasm involves silent prayer, usually of the contemplation and repetition of the Jesus prayer, which is, Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy upon me, or Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And then also the contemplation of the virtues, so that one, in this, through prayer and contemplation, would become deified, in the sense that, as Westerners, we would usually frame this as becoming like God. They would simply say becoming God, but they don't mean, Palamas would have never meant, and the Eastern Orthodox Church doesn't mean becoming the essence of God, but what he's going to later distinguish as the energies of God, which again is a distinction that's there in the patristics, but not one that had been developed as a cornerstone of Eastern theology until Palamas. And so, and again, let's distinguish, when we're talking about patristics, we're saying that uh, what all of the, the Roman Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox, what everyone shares is a patristic understanding. And so within a patristic understanding, uh, the idea coming out of Peter and other places in the New Testament of a participation or even a deification, yes. uh, certainly not the idea that we become in some way the essence of God, but... I, the way that I've often said it is we participate in the Trinity. Yeah, so the scriptural reference is Second Peter chapter 1, verse 4, uses the word theosis. And what does that mean? To partake of the divine nature is the way English renders it usually. And in some way it means to have a real encounter and participation in God, to become what God is, but not in the sense of God's essence. In the West, it's usually a distinction between essence and nature. That stems from Latin. And that's always the problem with this, is uh, Latin theologians are writing and thinking in Latin, and Greek theologians are writing and thinking in Greek. And so some of the controversy probably could have been avoided. Uh, not this one in particular, but other ones could have. So in Greek, usually they think of essence or nature as being the same thing, and the Greek word energia, or energy, as being... Uh, the other to that. Mm-hmm. And so the, in uh, the uh, hesychasm, there is the participation or putting on of theosis, or you're practicing putting on, participating in deity. Mm-hmm. And the idea is a concentrated effort at putting on Christ in yeah. an embodied sense. And it's just one means of uh, deification or theosis and really wouldn't have been a big deal if it hadn't been for the fact that monks and Palamas himself were claiming to have seen the divine light or witnessed or experienced the divine light while praying this prayer. And Barlam said, no, that's impossible. (laughs) In other words, it's not dealing with something like scripture or you haven't seen Christ, so... You obviously haven't seen God or become like God in that sense. And it certainly seems problematic to say that you've seen God. Yes. So you understand where a controversy could have arose from. And so then what Palamas does is to combat uh, his rival claims or to defend hesychasm, really, is he leaves the monastery and he begins to develop... uh, Maybe that's too strong. He begins to work out the doctrine of God being true to patristic sources to explain, well, no, what's happening here is legitimate. And um, he's going to distinguish then between the nature of God, or the essence of God, and the energia, or the energy of God. And what's key to understand in this is the essence is always present and manifest in the energy. 
of God, but the energies aren't um, exactly identical to the essence. And so the the idea here, maybe we could break this down in the, the you know the technical language. The, let's say it in a different way. That what is happening in this form of prayer, maybe just Eastern mysticism, and correct me if I'm wrong, is the idea that in some way, yes, you're participating, you're you're uh, take you know, but that you cannot know in the sense of in the Latin tradition the essence of God, but even in this uh, uh, understanding of prayer or putting or theosis, uh, are they still talking though about experiencing at some level or participating in the essence of God? So you would participate in the essence of God by participating in the energies, but you would not become the essence of God. So there's all sorts of logical principles and premises that are at stake here, uh, like knows like and so on and so forth. But what is really key to the conversation is remembering that knowledge for Palamas isn't something that is done by the mind, but it includes a complete experience of the person. And so to just completely participate and become God in the sense of God's essence would mean to become God and no longer be created. That's the major distinction in Eastern Orthodox theology between humans and God is uncreated God versus created human beings. But the energies of God, on the other hand, we can become those, which it would be unfair, oversimplistic, to just say that the distinction between essence and energies is the same as between God and his attributes, though it's very similar. I mean, Gregory of Palamas goes to great lengths to describe what exactly the energies of God are and how they're not hypostases or they're not... Uh, neither or they simply actions. So somewhere in the middle of that, it's not as if the energies of God would be the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit or anything along those lines. Um, but it's not just mere action either. It's things like love, but God is self-identical to love. It's not as if love was a concept other than God. So one way of talking about this is theosis or deification would allow the monks or Christians, and Gregory is emphatic that this is a possibility for all Christians, um, would, it would be such that we become the love of God, or we become the faithfulness of God. And that is the work of Christianity and Gregory's mindset. But even as we do that, we become the love of God or the faithfulness of God as humans. Mm-hmm. And this is only possible, of course, because of the incarnation of Christ. So let's talk about the incarnation. So in terms of energy and essence, uh, that Christ is the essence of God. Yes, so all Christians would agree on the Chalcedonian formula, which in the end can be explained by saying that Jesus Christ is the divine hypostasis of the Son of God with a human nature in hypostasized in him. So fully taken on the human nature, but remains the divine person. So that in Christ we encounter the essence and energy of God that uh, the I think the language you've used before, you know, that in the New Testament, when we talk about the Son of God, uh, focused on the the humanity of Christ, that humanity and deity then are brought together, and brought together in such a way that we can know Christ, but not know in the sense of apprehend in his fullness, but know in the sense, maybe you can just talk about any person, you don't know anybody yes, yeah. in their you know completeness yeah. but you know them 
in, in, in experiential sense. So an encounter with Christ would include an encounter with the divine essence, but that doesn't exhaust the divine essence mm-hmm. in any way. It's not as if we've gotten a handle on that, and we certainly aren't going to become uh, the divine essence in an encounter with Christ, but we certainly can become like Christ. That's the point of being a disciple or a follower. And let's, let's go back and emphasize again then. So how is what we're describing, you know, this embodied experience of, of who God is in Christ, how is this, and I, I think you're claiming this is an improvement, this is the preferred choice over uh, what is going to become the worst parts of scholasticism and nominalism. Yeah, yeah so... Um, if one were to do a comparison of Gregory Palamas and Thomas Aquinas, you might find a greater sophistication and certainly greater detail in the theology of Aquinas explaining all of this uh, via analogy. In Palamas, you don't quite get that, but you get very straightforward and easy to understand practical solutions. So. Uh, if you wanted to compare the two thinkers in another way, you could say that Thomas is more of a systematician. He's a systematic and speculative theologian, whereas Gregory is really just dealing with doctrines. So uh, it re- in Gregory, it is an either-or type of thing. You either agree with Gregory, not saying that it is an explanation necessarily, or you agree with Barlam. And in Gregory, we're getting a system which allows us to say that theosis is truly possible. We are humans, and being human means that uh, being created in the image and likeness of God as humans means that through Jesus, through an incarnation of the Son of God, we have the possibility uh, as humans created in that image and likeness to participate in the nature of God. We, have, we can participate in the Trinity, in other words. And this is Barlam's objection yeah, at this point. Say, no. <laughs> he's going to say, we, you can't see the divine light that way. Uh, that's not possible. Actually, Barlam is much more interested in the rational contemplation of Scripture or doctrine, something mm-hmm. like that. He would say, that's the way that you participate, or that's the way that you have access to becoming like Christ. Where Palamas is saying, no, it's a real, it's an embodied experience. Even prayer will do it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so there's no secret to the fact that Eastern Orthodox have always privileged prayer uh, as an aspect of theosis, but that certainly is intensified with Gregory of Palamas and afterwards. And so, uh, there, there, even though this isn't necessarily a historical dividing point, we can begin to distinguish a Latin and uh, Greek theology here. Uh, and let's let's work it out a little bit. Uh, that the the way that uh, the Latin tradition is going to go is toward an uh, 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 a, when we talk about knowing God, they're not thinking they're thinking in terms of apprehending. And uh, in the Latin tradition, knowing God, you might even use the same language, but they would probably object. But maybe the idea of a Hebraic knowing in the sense of a full embodied uh, knowing. So it's certainly characteristic of this time period. That's what's happening in Latin theology. And that's going to be a major objection of the East. So in Eastern Orthodoxy, there really isn't a division between theology and life in the church. In the same way that uh, as theology develops in the West, it becomes something that academics do. That's not so in the East. 
Uh, although, practically speaking, all this is going to get very much confused, but during this time period, uh, that was definitely true. So who were theologians in the Eastern Church? Well, nobody was really called a theologian unless you had had uh, you know, a direct experience with God, but the people who were doing theology in the Eastern Church were priests and bishops. The people who were doing theology in the West at this time period were working in the universities. This is about the same time period that the universities are being founded as well, which is important. And so it becomes that uh, theology becomes something that the elites tend to do, or the academicians in the West tend to do, whereas uh, 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 to fully experience God in the, the East, the idea is, well, you're doing theology. Yes, so uh, the idea is that an illiterate monk could experience God through prayer. And even the word theosis yeah. uh, uh, conveys that. Uh, but let's take it back that, I mean, there, there is a problem in the idea of, uh, of vision. And so run down, is that uh, heretical to say that you can see God? It actually, that was, uh, this is a very good point to bring up, because this is what Barlam was accusing Palamas and his followers of uh, saying. They were first accused by Barlam as being Messaleans, and Messaleans taught, literally, that one could, by prayer, see the divine essence. And Palamas' response is, that has nothing to do with what we're teaching at all. But, of course, that was the initial objection. So Palamas is saying... Uh, is never claiming to have seen the divine essence. Palamas would agree with all Orthodox Christians that no one can see the divine essence. That's not a possibility. But what he says he is seeing is an uncreated light that is an energy of God. Now, all of that language, it just sounds like more mysticism of any stripe, but there is a very strong difference between this type of mysticism and what you might get in uh, Buddhism, being dissolved into the one type of thing. In seeing the energies of God, and the importance of this distinction between the energies and the essence, is to also allow for this distinction between the human individual is created and God is uncreated. So even this experience or this vision of the divine light what has a purpose. In other words, it's not just, oh, that was cool type of thing, and that's how the Eastern Orthodox usually treat all miracles or miraculous signs. Uh, the, the vision of the divine light is directly associated with the fact of a maturity that has been reached, a spiritual maturity that has been reached through this prayer. So that there is always this distinction between um, the created individual before God becoming the energies of God but not the essence of God, remaining a human uh, being deified, the vision of the divine light is something that simply accompanies mature Christianity through theosis. So that it's, it's not, not the point, in other words. Okay, it's not a literal vision of a literal. It's very much an experience. Okay, and the idea is, and maybe maybe we need to run down a little bit, that when they're talking about uh, you know we, uh, mysticism or an experience of God. I mean, even in the Eastern tradition, this seems to, to sometimes carry over into a kind of heresy. But let's talk about what would be the difference between a le- legitimate and illegitimate mysticism, uh, and, and even in the Orthodox tradition, how has that worked out? Well, I'm certainly not qualified or skilled to go through individuals in Orthodox history, but you do get in more recent theologians like Vladimir Lasky a lengthy discussion on mysticism. 
And by mysticism, what he is wanting to affirm, uh, and very much in the Palamite tradition, is that there is this distinction between God's essence and energies, and who God is in his essence is completely uh, incommunicable, incommunicable and unknowable, unattainable type of thing. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we can't have a real experience of God. Right. And so how do we speak about that? And that involves mystery, or the mystery of God. Also granting that the mystery has been revealed in Christ, and so that you have the incarnation as the central revelation of that mystery. And even that's important, that they realize Christ isn't revealing God to us in the sense that Christ is explaining uh, vocally, uh, orally rather, uh, who God is. And you get this in the Gospel of John. What does it mean that he has explained the Father to us. Well, the wording in the Greek is exegeted. Mm-hmm. So it's not so much as just explained, but made manifest who the Father is through the incarnation, not just through the teaching. And that's, I think, how many Western Christians read that passage. But rather, who Christ is in the incarnation is the revelation of the Father. So you get, is it Philip that asks, when are, we going, when are you going to show us the Father? When do we uh-huh. see the Father? And Jesus says, well, haven't you seen me? Uh-huh. And the idea there is that haven't you had an experience with me as a person for the last few years, Philip? I've been with you. Uh-huh. Uh, you know the Father. And I think that's the idea that Lofsky is trying to communicate. So it's mysterious because it's not rational. It's an experience. But neither does that mean that in any way Eastern Orthodox or a legitimate mysticism is without content or inexplicable or um, sort of ineffable. Yeah, it's uh, not apophatic. Yeah. In well, its, it is apophatic, of course. But, but not would, absolutely apophatic. Uh, well, they would say it is absolutely apophatic in the sense, but not in the sense of a different type of mysticism. God is apophatic, theology is apophatic at some point, but what they mean by that is, is could be mediated. Now, Lossky's not going to go here, but could be mediated by a, a, analogy. Meaning, as humans know, we're never going to come up with the language or the terms to completely, fully, or uh, you know, totally describe who God is in any way. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't be about that work, about mm-hmm. describing God, talking about God. Uh, and figuring out how we relate to God. It's apophatic in the sense that those titles are, there are concepts of God always fall short. As well. and, may, and maybe it's helpful at this point to jump ahead and look at what happens in a typical uh, Protestant or evangelical understanding in which theology has tended to reduce our understanding of Scripture and of Christ to a propositional content Mm -hmm. and i think that's the that once you see the end point of that that uh you know that a good you know modernist evangelical is going to say well what is christianity christianity is these doctrines that that, and you adhere to these doctrines you believe this these doctrines and that's what makes you a christian so uh, i think you're exactly right that the greatest distinction that we're talking about here is is Christianity something you can list out and explain? Or is Christianity a way of life that experiences God through an encounter with the risen Lord? And so, I mean, some of our heroes here, that you know, somebody like Carl F. H. Henry or uh, you know, that that uh, as as good as they were, they perhaps were working in a theological tradition. Uh, and I, I, you know, I don't mean to to veer into to saying that one's modern and one's postmodern, 
But certainly in the Eastern understanding, you have an alternative to this propositionalism. Yeah. You know, yes, propositionalism is rejected from the get-go. And I, and I assume with that, it's not, oh, that you don't do any propositions, it's that you do right. not reduce the understanding or apprehension of the essence of God. Or yep. So they would understand that doctrinal theology sets perhaps like the parameters mm-hmm. of what is orthodox. So uh, you can't say anything that is orthodox that in any way negates the theology of the church, and by that they mean the theology of the seven ecumenical councils. On the other hand, that doesn't mean that we have in any way explained Christianity. Uh-huh. We've simply set limits on what Christianity clearly isn't. So the, uh, the, the goal then is then to embody this thing mm-hmm. and, and to in some way reduce it to a nominalistic or a... Uh, an academic or a head knowledge is really to miss the whole point. Yes. Have we missed the whole point? Well, I don't think we have to. <laughs> Let's go back though to the controversy. Uh, and so the the one issue was between on prayer, but what what was the was that the full bodied nature of this controversy? Well, I think what the controversy ends up being is how do we know God? Or how is God known to us? What is the nature of our knowledge of God? And which is all really just there. Those are all questions about the doctrine of God. And so Palamas's doctrine of God just solidifies what you already get. I think especially in uh, Gregory of Nazianzus is this distinction between essence and energy as a vocabulary that is suitable to talking about who God is for us and how we interact and experience God. John, summarize then, in conclusion, um, the the nature of the controversy and its significance, and what we can take away from this. Then, then you know, what is the good thing that we should take away? And uh, maybe, as you say this, I don't think that either of us are advocating Eastern Orthodoxy or anything like that. But that there is an understanding in the Eastern tradition. Uh, that is of value. So in uh, the controversy between Barlam and Palamas, you get uh, two opposing ways of doing Christianity. One of them is rationalistic, and it's centered around what you might know and how much of God can we know, but knowing, of course, isn't experiential, but something, it's uh, it's an operation of the mind. But in Palamas, what you get is an embodied Christianity that involves an experience of God that deifies us. And I think that the only orthodox version, and I mean that as like little orthodox that we can all participate in, the only real orthodox Christianity is one that has as its object not an escape of hell, or even escape of sin as its main object, but rather has as its point a life lived in communion with the body of Christ, the, the Christians, the Christian community uh, universally, and then also in such a sense to the end that we become like God, that we are being deified or that we are undergoing theosis. And this is the point of Christianity. So is that an exclusively Eastern concept? I don't think that it has to be, and I think it's in many Western writers as well, and certainly can be appreciated by anyone who answers Jesus' call to become a disciple and follow him. And I think you're, you're getting this in, in the, 
people like uh, Harawas and the post-liberals, mm-hmm. and uh, there there is this full-bodied experience. There's this understanding they're calling narrative theology uh, that has been there in the East, and we've just sort of. It's not like they're discovering something new, but they're right. rediscovering a tradition or an understanding that in some way we've left behind. Really, they're just historic Christianity is being rediscovered. They're rediscovering Christianity. Yeah. Let me hit one note in conclusion. You said something here very interesting. And you said that in the Eastern understanding, then, there is not the focus on simply overcoming sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is, that sin is not uh, as you know, the shaping force mm-hmm. as it tends to be in uh, some of mm-hmm. the Western. Run, run, just quickly run that down. And of course that's twofold. So from a human perspective, of course sin's our biggest problem. Mm-hmm. But is sin, the, is sin in any way the defining factor of the plan of God or the economy of God? Well, certainly not. Because the fall wouldn't even be necessary to that. So that rather than getting caught up in a, a system that needs sin to be overcome, the guilt of sin, rather, to be overcome by some kind of a vicarious sacrifice that fully explains the atonement, that's simply not there in Eastern Orthodoxy. Of course, Jesus' death is a type of sacrifice, but that's only one of many biblical metaphors. And what they tend to focus on, really, for uh, the completion of God's plan is the fact that we are created in the image and likeness of God, the image presupposes the incarnate Son of God. And through the incarnation, we are able to truly be made in his image. He demonstrates that image for us. And the likeness then we grow in by the power of the Holy Spirit and uh, the Son of God being mediated to us through the Holy Spirit. And that is the work of theosis. So the, the, That's the work of Christianity. That's right, all of it. That's right. salvation. That's becoming fully yeah. human. And again, another notion, I think, in the Eastern understanding that uh, is one that is valuable and uh, in understanding uh, a full-bodied notion of atonement, but also of the purposes of God in his predestination. Yeah, so incarnation... Uh, Jesus' incarnation is now an eternal thing. It's an eternal aspect. So what does that mean about the redemption of all things? Well, that's an incarnate redemption. So they use the word apokatastasis, uh, referring to a universal eschatology where all of, all things are redeemed and realized in the new heavens and the new earth. John, thank you for this. We're sitting out in John's porch in Illinois. We just He's gone through an ordination service and uh, it's just a lovely evening here. I don't know if you can hear the uh, the uh, crickets and uh, the occasional truck going by on the highway, uh, but a great time to have a discussion uh, about theology. So, thanks, John.